Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DOD, industry, and other subject matter experts who explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. It's a straight up fact. Bombers are one of the most important tools in America's arsenal. The reasons for this are simple. They bring an unmatched combination of range, payload, mission flexibility, responsiveness, and survivability to the fight. Consider the B-2. It can take off from a base and fly 6,000 miles and then come home. And that's all on internal fuel. No tanking required. It can do this carrying 8,500-pound JDAMs, and its stealth design means it can penetrate enemy defenses and safely return home for the next sortie. That's a huge amount of combat power commanders can direct when and where they need it most. It would take dozens of fighters to equal that sort of capacity, and even then, they would never have that sort of range, and that is a big deal when you start looking at the geography of the Pacific. But America's bomber inventory is in bad need of a reset. It's smaller and older than any time since the Air Force's founding. Consider that today, the service only has 141 bombers. That's about a third of what we had in 1989. Does anyone think that makes us safer and more capable of deterring threats in 2023? I'd suggest Russia invading Ukraine, Chinese aggression in the Pacific, and the nuclear ambitions of Iran and North Korea indicate otherwise. That's why programs like the B-21, America's newest bomber, are so important. And it's how we're going to renew America's long-range strike force and ensure it has the right mix of capabilities and capacity to deter peer aggression. And to discuss this with me today, I'm really pleased to introduce Mark Gonzo Gunzinger. He's one of Mitchell's top leaders in his capacity as Director of Future Concepts and Capability Assessments. He is also a leading authority on the bomber mission with years of experience as a B-52 pilot and then worked the long-range strike portfolio at the highest levels of defense during the later portions of his career in government. So we are pleased to introduce Gonzo back to the show. Sir, thanks for being here. Great to be back. Okay, and I am also pleased to introduce Major General Larry Stutzream, our Director of Research. He's a career combat pilot and has employed bombers in multiple combat operations as a member of the Combined Air Operations Center during Operations Enduring Freedom and Iraqi Freedom. Stutz, welcome back to the show. Hey, it's great to be back, Slick, and it's a privilege to be here with my colleague, Mark Gunzinger. Gonzo knows more about this topic than any general officer on active duty today. He's, I'm looking at him right now. We got lots of history. He's been involved in nearly every modern era bomber study and major force planning event while he's on active duty in the air staff, and then as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, Gonzo, I am privileged to be here. I hope I can keep up with you. Oh, I have no doubt that your F-4 speeds more than match my B-52 speeds. <laughs> I tell you, for the listeners here, the level of expertise, it's really unprecedented. And Stutz, I want to kick this thing off and get started with you. Would you mind to give us a rundown of the state of the bomber force? I remember Global Strike Commander testifying back in 2018 that the command experienced an 1,100% increase over the past five years in COCOM demand for bombers. The inventory is even smaller now, given with some of the B-1 retirements. And 
I've got to believe that demand for bombers hasn't declined. We're seeing a bomber task force mission. They're making news all over the world and all the time. Can you break this down for us? Yeah. Let me start with the good news. There's not a more talented and dedicated team of airmen in the world and American bomber crews, maintainers also, and the support team. They're asked to take it downtown to the adversary, and I know they will. I have no doubt. But here's the bad news, Slick, the aircraft they fly. The bomber aircraft are too few and too old. There's only 141 bombers to cover the immense demand. And like you said, Slick, the bomber inventory has been hacked down since the end of the Cold War to a third its size. But that statistic, although it's stunning, doesn't represent what many of your listeners today may not understand. Think back 25 years ago how stealth technology revolutionized air power when it penetrated Iraq's air defenses, and it penetrated those defenses unseen. At the time, Baghdad was one of the most heavily defended cities on the planet. One would assume that today our bomber fleet would be all stealthy. No, it's not. Of those 141 bombers for our nation's defense, only a mere 20, the B-2 Spirit bombers, only 20 are stealthy. That's it. And we may only see about four to six of those available to fly combat sorties at any one time. And in a China-Taiwan conflict, because of distances from which they have to travel, we might only see a sortie every three days out of each of those aircraft. And oh, by the way, the average age of a B-2 is about 26 years. That means it carries older generation stealth technology, while modern threats have only gotten better by leaps and bounds. Now, the other two aircraft are the B-1 Lancer, that's 45 airframes of the 141 total bombers. And its average age is nearly 35 years. It has no stealth technology. And then the bulk of America's bombers is the venerable B-52 Stratofortress that the Gonzo flew. There are 76 of those, and the average age of those aircraft, wait for it, 60 years old. So half the nation's bomber fleet, which we need to face threat in this decade, our aircraft built three quarters of a century ago. Small, old, fragile. Just 141 bombers to cover the planet at an average age overall of 41 years. The question is how do joint operations succeed in high-end conflict? That's the question we all need to ask. Fortunately, the advanced B-21 Raiders, after a number of delayed modernization choices, that B-21 Raider is on the near horizon, and we need that badly. I'm not good at math, especially math in public, but this B-52 stat that you just gave with the age would have meant that we would, it's like the same thing as flying a B-17 during Desert Storm. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> okay. So just to put this into context for our listeners, yeah, that's pretty crazy. Gonzo, I want to get you in here and really understand your take on the demand side of the equation. Because, you know, you grew up in an Air Force that had a lot more long-range strike capability and capacity. Why are we seeing the sustained surge in demand for bombers? Yeah, great question. I've watched demand for bombers grow over the last 30 years, driven by operational requirements. Since September 11, 2001, a lot of the demand was due to operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. No secret there. Bombers could provide capabilities of CENTCOM that couldn't be matched by any other manned aircraft, namely at large payloads, weapons, and the ability to loiter for long periods of time to provide that on-demand, time-critical strike support to 
soften other forces. And as Stutz said, more recently, Bomber Crew's been flying task force missions in the Indo-Pacific, Europe, and other regions to bolster deterrence and demonstrate the Air Force's ability to rapidly respond to crises over intercontinental ranges. The COCOMs understand that only bombers can provide them with a high-capacity precision strikes they're going to need within hours of the start of a conflict with China or even Russia. And in the case of the B-2 and B-21, it gives them options to penetrate contested areas and take the initiative against the enemy's forces. No other U.S. service or allied military can match the Air Force's ability to mass precision effects at range. The Bomber Force is one of our nation's unique military advantages, and we should not allow it to further dissipate. Yeah, one of the things, Gonzo, that I think about, and this is touting, obviously, your experience, but literally, you've worked on almost every Air Force force planning effort since the end of the Cold War in one way or another, and you saw this coming way back in the 1990s. Why do we take so much risk in our long-range strike capacity? Yeah, so I'm going to mention a few takeaways from these force planning efforts, starting before DoD's 1993 bottom-up review. And I believe these takeaways will help explain why the bomber force is now a high-risk force. First, recommendations stemming from many of DoD's force analyses in the 1990s and later were influenced by its desire to reduce defense spending, instead of determining the most cost-effective capabilities to accomplish deep strikes. The B-2 program is the premier case of that. Like, of course, the program only procured our 21 bombers instead of the Air Force's required fleet of 132. Now, while the Bush 41 administration first capped the B-2 by, you know, after the Cold War, DOD revisited that issue during the 1997 QDR, which I was a part of. And even though joint analyses completed during that QDR determined that Penetrating bombers, the B-2, the most cost-effective means to conduct deep strikes, far more so than aircraft carriers or Army long-range fires, Secretary of Defense Cohen decided not to buy more B-2s. So from my perspective, prioritizing cost avoidance over warfighting effectiveness was force planning malpractice. And we are now living with the risk it created. I'd like to mention a couple of assumptions that also drove DOD's force structure and bomber force decisions. Like Navy, Marine Corps, and Air Force fighters could quickly deploy to a theater conflict and provide the strike capacity needed to defeat aggression by a rogue state like Iran or North Korea. Plus, DOD planners assumed those fighters could generate combat sorties from their forward air bases and aircraft carriers nearly unchallenged by an enemy's air and missile attacks. So those are the kind of assumptions underpin DOD's decision to cut its bombers and forego buying a new penetrating aircraft, and that is impacting us today. But the good news, of course, is DOD has finally accepted these assumptions are no longer a valid foundation for determining its future force design requirements, and that's why it is also pursuing the B-21. Well said, Gonzo. Look, I got to cut in. With a war story, well, not a war story because it's a staff story, but I think you'll identify with this. I did some tabletop war games with some OSD civilian leaders and other guys across the services, and it was led by OSD civilian leaders. This is mid-2000s or so. They were smart folks, but not operationally, not warfighting smart. And these couple of smart sailors and a Marine briefed a war game, the war game, 
on how they would subdue China with air power from aircraft carriers. Really cool PowerPoint slides to prove it. And as Air Force Airmen, my colleagues and I were like, what do you, you have to fight. You can't do that. You'll never get there. Your air power off the carrier is going to be consumed defending the carrier assets. Now, that, that pitch they gave might have been naive, even parochial, and you wouldn't get away with that today. There's t- too good an understanding of the threat. But 20 years later, there's an equally misleading and dangerous vacuum. It's the knowledge of how pivotal bomber capability will be to establishing the level of air superiority the other services need to fight and, more importantly, survive. Air Force bombers bring the mass to do that. I would suggest, Gonzo, the, and you've seen this, the Air Force needs to talk a lot louder and be more assertive about how bombers are central, central to any warfighting strategy. It will take what we have today and many more B-21s that don't exist yet and then even more B-21 as fast as possible for us to confront China. Yeah, I agree, Brother Stutz, and it's great to hear a fighter pilot say that. <laughs> Hopefully with, with some headlines of the potential of CQ Brown becoming the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, may, maybe we will have a much stronger voice there. And as a quick segue, you just said it, Stutz. We could sit here and complain about things in the past that led us to where we are now, but we do have some good news I think it's spelled B-21, and you just said it. Gonzo, can you talk us through why this aircraft is so important and when it comes to resetting both the bomber capacity and really capabilities? Absolutely. So let's talk about the future. Only a right-sized bomber force will have the range, the weapons capacity, and the survivability to penetrate contested areas and rain hell on PLA forces that are going to be critical to a Chinese attack on Taiwan or similar active aggression. Preventing China or Russia from successfully completing what's called a rapid fate accompli attack on a U.S. ally or partner, that's a top priority of our national defense strategy. Why? Because if we can't defeat their offensive, the level of effort needed to then drive an entrenched occupying force out of Taiwan or, in case of Russia and NATO, one or more of the Baltic states, that'd be absolutely prohibitive and, frankly, highly escalatory. The better answer is to prevent an invasion from seeding, and an even better answer is to convince China and Russia that we have the capability and capacity to do so. That's deterrence. And it's going to require air forces that can strike thousands of targets over thousands of square miles in hundreds of hours, and that means a right-sized force, the B-21s, which are going to have that unmatched low observability range and the right mission systems needed to operate and those highly contested areas. Stutz, I want to get your thoughts on this as well. Yeah, Slick. And Gonzo, you spoke to the need to strike thousands of targets over a great expanse. We're in an entirely new and complex problem to solve, and the B-21 is designed to solve that problem. Look, the Pentagon has a bad habit of talking generically in terms of a new airplane or a new tank, a new infantry rifle, a new sub. And the B-21 Raider is not just a matter of a training. Let me start that again. The B-21 Raider is not just a matter of trading in the old beat-up Plymouth for a new old Plymouth. The aircraft is nothing like the combat footage we see in World War II documentaries or in, even in the Cold War. Yes, 
This is an aircraft that has range and it has payload just like we expect the bombers, but it's the first information age combat bomber. It's a product immersed in the technology innovations of the last and the current decade, not the decade of the B-52's birth in the 1950s or even in the decade of the B-2 stealth bomber, and I think that would be 1980s. So the Air Force adds with the B-21 to the enduring features of range and payload, things like advanced sensors, advanced processing power, and ways to connect into networks. All this makes it a highly collaborative aircraft with other aircraft and other players in the combat space. And by the way, it's ready when it comes out to explore the power of cross-domain synergies with other service capabilities. And that's exciting stuff to think about even for a fighter pilot, Gonzo. <laughs> I'm sorry, Gonzo. I was going to have you hop in here and talk about that being the new exciting part of Bomber Force. But so the B-52 is also slated to get new jet engines, radar, avionics, communications kit. How will that help the long-range strike inventory over a long term? Yeah, over the long run, it will certainly help meet demand for long-range strike. But in the interim, it will likely impact bomber capacity available to the COCOMs. And let me explain that. First is Secretary Kennel had just said during testimony that B-52 is, and I'll quote him, so robustly designed that we can keep it pretty much forever, unquote. That forever's a long time. B-52s really are a case study that shows the benefit of designing combat aircraft with excess space, power generation, and cooling capacity. And the B-52 swap C's, as called, is why the Air Force has been able to modify it over time to carry new munitions, more advanced mission systems, and even modify it to perform missions that were never envisioned for B-52s when they were first designed in the early 50s. So the aircraft may be old, but in terms of aeronautical stresses, the airframes, their bones, are not. And that's why B-52s could be on the ramp until 2050 or perhaps even longer, bringing that standoff strike capacity to the warfight that our COCOM is going to need. Uh, planned modifications are going to increase their fuel efficiency and ranges and ensure the B-52Js, which will be their new designator, can integrate their operations with the rest of the force. So they really are needed to keep buffs a frontline warfighting capability. That said, the other point I mentioned, plan B-52 upgrades must be done at the depot level. So that means there will be a period of years where some number of B-52s undergoing upgrades will not be combat capable and they will not be able to support operational taskings. Yeah, I want to really dive into this a little more. Can you walk us through the different roles that you see the B-52 and the B-21 playing in the future together. One is a stand-in bomber and the other one stand-off. So what are the respective roles of each and why do we need to maintain the right ratio between the two? Absolutely. So every long-range strike analysis I've been a part of has said that we need a mix of stand-off and stand-in shooters. Both have their advantages. Stand-off systems reduce risk to air crews, of course, since they do not have to penetrate an enemy's IADs, while penetrating aircraft can be more effective against mobile targets. Standoff aircraft, and for that matter, ships with vertical launch systems, attack subs, and ground launchers need target queuing information provided by overhead assets or ISR aircraft, while penetrating B-21s and F-35s and other penetrators can find, fix, track, and attack moving targets organically. 
And this ability will help maintain our kill chain advantage in comms degraded denied environments, which is the subject of a brand new Mitchell report by our very own Heather Penny. And let's not forget that standoff shooters must use weapons that have long ranges, and they're typically larger, more expensive than munitions that can be carried into the fight through target areas by penetrating aircraft. Weapon sizes count, because maximizing weapons per sortie, really as targets per sortie, is critical to rapidly blunting an invasion. The problem is, our bomber force now predominantly consists of non-penetrating B-52s and B-1s, so it's out of balance. That problem will soon be corrected as B-21s join the force, but that will not be the case if a future administration truncates the B-21s procurement like what happened to the B-2. We must remember that whatever savings would be realized from reducing B-21 acquisition would be far outstripped by the massive costs our nation would suffer if we actually had to fight a war with China. I don't even want to get into that part of the discussion of truncating numbers because we've been down that road far too many times with too many programs, and that just seems to be the easy button when obviously we know that the numbers that we propose are the numbers that we need to buy. But Stutz, I've got to ask you this. I know we've had recent headlines in the news highlighting the DOD's 15-year aviation plan projected growth for the bomber mission, which is positive going from 143 to 173 in the 2030s. But I suspect part of the reason for this gradual buildup will be due to retiring older bombers as B-21s join the force. So can you walk the audience through how you see the demand signal shaping up over time? And I just want to remind folks that, you know, the 2018 force structure study termed, quote, the Air Force we need also called for growth in bombers. So this is a consistent theme that we've had from the DOD. We need to first be careful that our old bombers are not competing with new bombers for money. Uh, The Air Force really needs to be assertive that bomber capacity has got to grow rapidly. The Congress should be asking, as Gonzo's laid out, the surging demand for bombers, the Congress should be asking what capacity do we need based on demand. The answer may be to keep the current 141 bombers and add to it as rapidly as possible. So a 30-plus up into the 2030s is a bit concerning, Slick. Bomber requirements are growing. Does this Projected inventory reflect a number that is actually a deterioration in posture, especially when the threat's factored in. I don't know, and we would need the commander of Global Strike Command to address this, but our Mitchell Institute analysis indicates the nation needs a far greater bomber inventory than 173 in the 2030s. And that's backed up by some other work done by other defense think tanks who have held high-fidelity workshops. So bottom line, capacity matters, and we need more bombers. Hey, do you gents know the story about the giant horse? Can I tell you a story? Sure. Yeah. Slick, is it okay with you? Oh, I would love to hear it. Let's go. Okay. There's a story about a wealthy, I'll make it short. There's a wealthy warlord in China who had a thousand horses to support his domain. I'll call him Warlord A. One day, this neighboring warlord comes by. I'll call him Warlord B. He sold him on this giant horse that he had bred. And that single giant horse was so amazing, it was so strong and vigorous, that it was able to do the work of the guy's Warlord A's, what, thousand horses. You know how this goes, right? Warlord A sells off his thousand horses for the super horse, but his fate would have it. The horse is killed by a jealous competing warlord by an arrow, and it left the man without any horses. The competing warlord swoops in, and the rest is history. 
So what I'm trying to say is, well, the incredible capability of the B-21 will impress and is it's so critically needed, there still needs to be adequate capacity to meet demand in the near term as well as the far term. And that's the end of my story. Yeah, no, it's, it's such a great point. And I want to ask Gonzo, could you, in your report, you talked about future uh, bomber force capacity demand. So can you walk us through those findings? Sure. So I said right size a couple of times. Let me put some definition on that. Uh, today's combat code of bomber force can generate an estimated 30 to 40 sorties per day after factoring in their mission-capable rates. And as Stutz said, the long ranges, they're going to have to fly during an Indo-Pak conflict. And those numbers do not account for nuclear-capable B-52s and B-2s that would be withheld from deployment during a fight with China or Russia to deter potential nuclear attacks. So the reality is today's bomber force falls short of what is needed for a single peer conflict plus deterrence. And that's why the Air Force analysis that they called the Air Force we need a few years ago said they must grow the bomber force by at least five more squadrons to meet national defense strategy requirements. Now in our report, REMAC recommended a future force of at least 300 total bombers, consisting of B-21s and all remaining B-52s. Now, that might seem like a big number, but it's still well below the size of the bomber force that our nation maintained to deter a single peer adversary during the Cold War, the Soviet Union. And our bomber force recommendation is consistent with, as Stutz said, numerous other force structure analyses that agreed more long-range strike capacity is required. Now, for more than a quarter century after the Cold War, DoD optimized its forces for smaller-scale regional conflicts with lesser militaries that were set in very compact spaces in the Middle East. So you don't have to be a force planner to understand that overcoming the tyranny of distance in the Indo-Pacific would drive requirements for a future force that has greater ranges than today's, what's on the ramp today, and a need to attack target sets that could number well over 100,000 more aim points. Yeah. And that's going to take more weapons delivery capacity we planned for in the past. And back to your story, one horse can only be in one place at one time. Same is true for go. bombers. Yeah. And that also is a horse-sized driver. I want to go back to the concept that we kicked off this podcast with. The element of time, uh, Gonzo, obviously plays into a numbers conversation, too. If we need to hit X number of targets in a concerted window to secure the kind of effects that we would really put pressure on an enemy's ability to sustain combat ops, how does that impact your thinking about the bomber force numbers and the time in which we get those to an employment status? Absolutely. Any force planner knows that time is a force capacity driver. Time is going to be critical in a fight with China over Taiwan or with Russia in the future over one of our allies along NATO's eastern frontier. Now, if we can't halt an amphibious assault on Taiwan, if we can't prevent armored forces from racing across the territory of uh, one or more of the Baltic states, then we will risk losing decisively. And given China and Russia's proximity to those battle spaces, we're talking single-digit days to prevent their campaigns from succeeding. We're not going to have weeks or even months to first build up a decisive force and then launch a counteroffensive as we did in the past. Operation Desert Storm. That's why we should size the bomber force to strike many thousands of targets in hundreds of hours, as the Air Force has said. Now, I should also mention attrition here. DE currently does not have a bomber or fighter attrition reserve. 
And as our war fighters have said, a fight with China could result in attrition levels that we haven't experienced since the Second World War. So we need that attrition reserve, the uh, staying power they provide, again, to convince our adversaries they will not be able to win by waging an extended campaign that depletes our best kit. Yeah, so that's, I've got to ask you this piece too, and Gonzo, I appreciate that breakdown, but it's great that we've got the B-21 nearing production, but I think it's important to highlight that the production rate is a big deal that's going to be important for resetting the bomber force inventory. We go through this thing where we know we need to get old iron off of active ramps fast and equip our airmen with the jets that they'll need to fly their missions, get home safe, and do it all over again the next day. So the question is, would a more aggressive production rate help us with this? Because certainly there are financial realities that will temper that goal. So what are your thoughts on how we balance this? Financial realities? Let me start there, Slick. Our nation just chaotically spent a couple trillion dollars on two decades of nation building with little to show for it. And that era of nation building in the Middle East and Southwest Asia was not existential to the United States to our security. But the funding flowed nonetheless. Now, today, we understand more clearly the objectives and the strategy of the communist leadership in China, and we see their astounding military buildup, their militarization of space. Uh, When we see all this, the call to divest the capacity of the Air Force to retire old stuff and hope by the good graces of Congress that the Air Force can put that money into modernization This is really living inside an arbitrary budget top line. The services are given a bogey and told they darn well better live inside it. No, the Air Force is now the focus of the future. And the overall defense budget needs to reorient to this fact. It needs to reorient. And this is logical from the substantial plus up during the two decades of nation building. The Army received about a trillion dollars more than the Air Force, and that makes sense. It's understandable. That was the mission. But now all that activity is way reduced, and the effort is now truly on high-end threats the nation faces. So priority now must quickly adapt and catch up, and that means modernization for the Air Force has to catch up because of all it does for joint operations as well as independently. So (laughs) getting a lot of words ahead of what you asked very simply slick the united states really needs to boost b21 procurement as high as possible and when i say high as high as industry can provide and i agree with all of those things i want to get gonzo to hop in on this one too yeah i'll keep it short we've all heard senior u.s officials talk about the potential for china to make a move on taiwan later this decade and yeah. that's going to be when the size of many of our forces will be reaching new historic lows, and that includes the Air Force's bomber inventory. So there are things the Air Force can do to increase its long-range strike capacity and bolster deterrence over the next 10 years. First, it can keep its current bombers in the inventory until the B-21 reaches full operational capability. Instead of retiring B-1s and eventually B-2s as Raiders join force. That makes sense from a warfighting perspective because, frankly, the Lack of long-range strike capacity is one of our military's most significant shortfalls. Second, Metro recommends ramping up B-21 production, just as Stutz said, as quickly as possible, and to a rate of 20 or more per year. So why 20? 
You know, that's consistent with the actual or planned max production rates for each of the Air Force's last four bombers. And the Air Force can at least do as well as it did in the past for B-21's production rate. And finally, those two recommendations would require giving the Air Force more budget top line and probably some end strength because the Air Force today simply doesn't have the resources needed to maintain all of its current B-1s, B-2s, B-52s while simultaneously growing the B-21 force. Yeah, I'm sitting here thinking about this next question for Stutz. We think about our allies and partners, for our listeners here, it's something I haven't really thought about. It's important to highlight that the United States is the only country that has bombers. We don't really ever bring that to light. So when we fly a bomber task force over the Korean Peninsula or over Europe, we're sending a powerful set of signals to, to our friends as well as potential adversaries. So Stutz, what's your perspective on how these task force missions impact the demand signal from our friends for bombers and other capabilities that only the United States Air Force can provide? You said it perfectly slick. The bombers are the most powerful tool in our diplomatic kit, really. They make international news when they deploy. It's a big deal. Adversaries know they're there. Think about it. The Chinese PLA commanders are probably sucking up their seat cushion when they hear that a B-21 might be flying into theater. That's going to be an interesting thing to watch. Being so valuable in this capacity, both for bolstering up our partners and allies to be with us, it's also an incredible deterrent. And so we need the adequate capacity as soon as possible, especially you get that B-21 radar on board. But the B-52 and the B-2s, they're doing a pretty good job of carrying the flag, just as you said, Slick. Yeah, when it comes to combat, we need to play to win, and that means capability and capacity. And that's important in peacetime, just as you said. All right, Jen, so we've talked a lot about the conventional missions. So what about nuclear deterrence? Russia has modernized most of their capabilities, and China's in the middle of a major breakout. Iran and North Korea can't be ignored. Gonzo, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, the current and former STRATCOM commanders both said, we need a modernized nuclear triad that deters two nuclear peers, Russia and China, instead of a single peer as we have for decades. Russia's nuclear forces continue to be formidable, despite the massive attrition its uh, conventional forces have absorbed due to Putin's terrible decision to invade Ukraine. According to date, Russia's nuclear modernization effort, which just started about 20 years ago, is now about 85 to 86% complete, while the reality is we're still at the starting gate. At the same time, China is sprinting to achieve nuclear warhead parity with the U.S., and its triad already has more ICBMs than we do. So we recommend that he continues modernize this triad and begin to increase its capacity to deter both Russia and China. And that should be a focus of these next nuclear posture reviews. Now, we also suggest that a larger force of dual-capable B-21s would be the most cost-effective way to do that. Since B-21s are dual capable, which means they're a two-for-one deal. Unlike SSBNs and Sentinel ICBMs, B-21s will be daily flyers that can deploy to support the COCOM's conventional deterrence and warfighting needs. And in a crisis, they can then swing to alert nuclear status to deter attacks on the U.S. homeland. Yeah, Gonzo, I couldn't agree more. And I want to get Stutz's thoughts on this as well. Yeah, 
Gonzo's really said it all. I'll just say that modernization is underway for the U.S. Air Force, that is the ICBMs and the B-21 bomber, but it's in the dust of this fast and furious nuclear modernization of China and Russia. So this really justifies an acceleration of B-21 if possible, but more importantly, we need to get it in big numbers and not be constrained by budgets. This is very important, and this is existential to the United States. It really is about the vital interests in protecting them. You just hit one of your last little comments there, the costs. And Gonzo, costs are going to rise for the B-21s as we start getting closer to production. So how do you respond to these concerns? Just my two cents here. I suggest we look at Ukraine. How did the lack of effective deterrence play out there? So does anyone think it's, it's better or cheaper than preventing a war through being strong? I would suggest yes. Yeah, anyone who's seen video of Ukrainian cities, Russia decimated, should understand the cost of a failure of deterrence. Our European NATO allies certainly do, especially those who fear that they could be Russia's next target. And it's great that we see our NATO allies finally beginning to increase their investments in military capabilities that have been woefully inadequate for decades. So we also have some major capability and capacity shortfalls due to decades of administration priorities that cut our forces and delayed their modernization. And we've seen this pattern time and again. The services have invested to mature next generation technologies. And then when they start programs to acquire them at scale, like the F-22 and the B-2, their production costs made them lucrative targets for cuts. Acquisition is where the real money is, and there's going to be a temptation to slow Sentinel and Raider production rates, perhaps even delay their IOC by a couple of years, whatever, in search of near-term savings. So, DoD's green eye shade folks have done this for decades, but there's a major difference today in the past. We are not focused on deterring third-rate rogue states. A major fight with our new pacing threat will have a direct impact on every one of our citizens and on the citizens of our allies and partners. It could have potentially existential consequences. So, going after programs like Sentinel and the radar that are critical to deterring China and Russia would be foolhardy. The costs of a failure of deterrence in that case would far exceed the costs of a credible, effective deterrence. And Gonzo, this ties to a major part of your report that deterrence only works if the force is properly sized for multiple threats, and bombers are a unique part of the defense equation. So can you walk us quickly through that rationale? Yeah, we talk about that in our report, which is our bomber force must be sized to deter and if necessarily defeat aggression by two adversaries nearly simultaneously, as well as deter nuclear attacks. That was the policy of our Department of Defense up until 2018, when it moved to a one war requirement for sizing his forces plus nuclear deterrence, homeland defense. And moving toward a force that has a capacity to fight a single peer adversary would drive considerable risk that Russia could decide to make a move in Europe, should we be fully engaged against China Pacific, or vice versa for that matter. Now, I'm not saying that all DoD forces must be sized for two wars, but our bomber force should, given its unmatched ability to rapidly project combat mass to blunt an invasion in both theaters. And I would include 5th and future 6th gen fighters in that two-war force as well because of their ability to rapidly respond over long distances and operate in those contested areas that, quote, do exactly what our national defense strategy requires. 
prevent a Chinese or Russian offensive from succeeding. So that would be the foundation for our future force to ensure that we are able to conduct all other joint force operations. And frankly, that's why the title of our report calls the V-21 America's Deterrence Bomber. The report really hits it all home. And Stutz, at Mitchell, we've really hit the point hard that the bomber force is small and old, and it's going to be this way until the B-21 production ramps up. What can Congress do to help ensure that we don't assume any more risk that we need during this transition period? Yeah, we've said most of it. It can't be too much more direct. It's a simple formula. The program, the B-21 program, needs ample funding based upon the urgency we've talked about here. Slick and Gonzo, you know this more than anybody here. It needs to be a consistent flow of resources. So part one is ample funding to exploit industry's capacity to produce B-21s, get them on the ramp, get them out there. Number two, consistently feed that program. Don't let parochialisms or other agendas play with the money. That, that could be disastrous out there in the future. Gentlemen, as always, I just looked at the clock and we're getting tight on time. I want to ask you each one last question. This one question is for you both. We all know the combat effectiveness of bombers and other strike forces depends on the munitions that they deliver. And we've heard a lot recently about shortfalls and PGMs and the need for, quote, affordable mass. So uh, what are your perspectives on next generation standoff and stand-in munitions that we need for peer conflicts? And we're not looking for specific requirements, but just getting your broad thoughts on this. I'll kick it off. The largest, most capable bomber and fighter force in the world will be useless if they run out of munitions. That's common sense. And today we don't have enough PGMs in inventory. And the risks of that are really driven home by what we're seeing happen in the defense of Ukraine. Our first recommendation is DOD must acquire larger stockpiles of PGMs and help industry increase its surge production capacity. And that's going to take allocating more dollars toward munitions. Second, the concept of affordable mass, which means our weapons must be affordable enough so the Air Force can buy them at the scale needed for peer conflict. And we suggest there's a sweet spot for standing munitions that balances their range, warhead size, survivability, and cost. The SAW, which could be the argument ER, is one such example of a lower cost, mid-range weapons designed to suppress advanced air defense radars. And finding the right sweet spot, the right balance for our next generation standoff munitions is equally important. And they're very long range, hypersonic standoff weapons are proven out to be maybe too big and too costly to buy and use them in large numbers. One final point, DED must dramatically increase the size of its anti-ship munitions inventory. Lorasms, which are modified versions of the stealthy Jasmine cruise missile will be a premier anti-ship weapon for decades to come. But buying a couple hundred of them a year and splitting the buy between the Navy and the Air Force, that's not going to give us the capacity needed to stop an amphibious assault on Taiwan and suppress Chinese SAGs, screening the landing, and so forth. I see that as one of our military's most pressing munitions shortfalls, which is why I'm a fan of acquiring interim solutions for maritime strike like the power JDAM, which has wings, a small motor, and a seeker to attack moving ships. And they're going to be far less costly to lorasms, and they can be quickly put into production. So that's just a couple examples of what we've been talking about. Gonzo, you're the master, and you just dropped the mic. <laughs> Let me say something to and about 
my airmen brothers and sisters, the Air Force seems to be happy right now, coloring inside the lines of budget bogeys they're handed by OSD or OMB or the White House. I get it. I was there once, but those bogeys are inadequate. Uh, why? Because Congress and the administration are not educated. If they understood the incredible risk of the decline of capacity and modernization of America's Air Force, they would act. I, I have to believe that. When you look at the Air Force being underfunded for 32 years compared to the other services, and yet air superiority is required for joint operations to succeed, the damned taxpayers should be enraged because they will be damned in conflict with China. It's that easy. So let me conclude. The B-21 is critical to national defense. It can't fail for lack of resources, parochialisms, or ignorance of the, the strategic role of air power. So we all need to educate the Congress, as well as the very land warfare-centric Department of Defense, about the need for bomber modernization, about the need for capacity, and the need to accelerate all that. It's about America's air power. We have an ominous future ahead of us. I just, I hope the Air Force will champion the messages Gonzo's laid out here for us today, uh, like champions of air power of past generations. They have to be very forthright with Congress speaking truth to leadership. And Slick, I just want to thank you for your podcast. It really has done so much in this venue. So I really appreciate that. And thank you for that. I agree. Thank well, you, Slick. Thank you both for being here. I appreciate the shout out. And to your point, we are really making headway because we're starting to host our elected leadership on this podcast to talk about the, these very threats to, to our nation and how air power is going to protect it all. And again, I'm a super shout out to General C.Q. Brown. I'm very hopeful that he gets the nomination and he does champion our voice for air power advocacy with those that can make it happen for us from a budget standpoint. Always a pleasure having both of you on the podcast. And I really just want to say a heartfelt thank you for being here today. Hey, thanks, Slick. Really appreciate it. You bet. Till next time. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.